Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. First of all, Happy New Year! It's 2021, we made it. Well, we made it this far, at least. And my guest for the first episode of this new year is Quinn Armstrong, a writer and director whose first feature, Survival Skills, uses the format of an 80s police training video to explore some very unpleasant things about masculinity, authority, domestic violence, and obsession. It had its Canadian premiere at Fantasia last August, it's available on VOD right now, and you should definitely check it out. Quinn chose Brief Encounter, the beloved British romance that marked the pinnacle of the creative collaboration between director David Lean and writer Noel Coward. It's an adaptation of Coward's short stage play, Still Life, starring Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard as strangers who fall for one another after a chance meeting in a train station. It's a primal tearjerker about desire and sacrifice, and three quarters of a century later, it still packs one of the most devastating endings ever committed to film. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. This is someone else's movie. You know, I'm not really a fan of the idea of like having a favorite movie, but people ask you and you have to, you know, it's so much easier to say, this is it, rather than delivering, like, I don't believe in that concept every time. Sure. Um, and I used to say Night of the Hunter, because if, you know, people, you, you tell them what it is, and they'll be like, oh, Night of the Hunter, so you like horror movies. And you'd be like, yes, that's kind of what I want to make. That's put me in that box in your brain. And I love Night of the Hunter. Um, but honestly, Brief Encounter is is my favorite movie. Um, it's, I, I, I love it to death. I love both the movie itself and all of its ripples out into the world in like Richard Linklater and Carol and Wong Kar Wai and uh, even Billy Wilder. There's an interesting little thing with the yeah. apartment. Yeah, no, I, I heard that he was, that the germ of the apartment is the idea of an, of someone else's apartment being used for an assignation. Yeah, it's, it's interesting seeing Noel Coward and Billy Wilder essentially tackle the similar idea and, you know, at different lengths because it's so it's so appropriate that Noel Coward's view on it is all this like we're going to talk about we're just very restrained and we're going to sort of hint around the edges of this stuff and Billy Wilder comes like smashing into the concept with all his force and makes another amazing movie yeah um, I watched it again last night and I suppose I hadn't seen it in maybe maybe not since I brought home the BFI box set, so 2008 or 2009, something like that, from the UK. Um, they have yeah. this great 10-disc lean collection. And um, it struck me this time that this may be the most repressed love story I've ever seen. It's not a bad thing, but it so perfectly encapsulates a, a, the mentality of 75 years ago where you could almost declare things in terms of showing them on screen, but these characters have to be so circumspect and 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 closed off even to each other right up until they're not yeah i think it's it's i i i have very little uh evidence to support this but i have this theory that the british and british culture is excellent for making great love stories but terrible for actually living great romances that okay. that repression and i'm i'm i apologize to the nation of of in, uh, the UK and all that, you guys are going through enough without me piling on. Um, but the the exact things, I don't know, I was, I was reading a little bit about this and there was a lot of hemming and hawing when it came out and among the productions having that sort of thing about like, why don't they consummate? Why don't they, why don't they have sex? And in, in that feels like the point. Um, and I think that's exactly one of the things that, that makes it so special is that these are two, I mean, I really can't, I can think of very few uh, uh, movies or stories at all where this is the case. This is a romance where both of the protagonists act like adults. Yeah. Um, most of the romances, even, even from great writers and directors like Preston Sturgis or Ernst Lubitsch or that sort of thing, they're essentially children. Um, they're essentially, you know, running around being, being kids because that's more entertaining in in the sort of metric of value we have around romance um but it's so great to see these two people who are adults who treat each other with respect and who treat their spouses by and large with respect yeah yeah 
and their and their spouses aren't ogres. That's the thing that's so cool about this. In any other movie, they would make the spouses like horrible cheaters or nags or whatever it is to make it okay that they you know they're falling in love. But that's not the way life works. Uh, yeah, I mean, the worst thing you can yeah. say about Fred is he's a little distracted and he wears suits when he should be changing out of him. That's we see so little of him too, right? We're seeing the flashback is I think I don't think it's supposed to be her fantasy of him. I think that really is how he is. Yeah. Uh yeah. and in the present day sequences he's he's no different. But yeah, he's not a bad person. He's just comfortable and mildly entitled in in much the way that a, a pre-war Englishman of of means would be. Uh yeah. not even like he's he makes a decent living, I assume, because of the suits and all he He's not, they're not wealthy, but they're comfortable. Yeah. And, you know, it's England, so they're not going to say they're not comfortable, even if they're not. <laughs> uh, I don't mean to be mean about this, it's, but it, but it, there is something that Noel Coward sets up in, in the way that he depicts the characters with real entitlement and real class that, is it Stephen, the the friend? I, I can never remember his name. Stephen, oh, I think, who is yeah. clearly some sort of either serial killer or player uh, who just... Stephen, Stephen Lynn, um, who maintains a, the bachelor apartment that they end up in, uh, and is so clearly repulsed by the idea that there was going to be someone having sex in his, in his rooms, in his homes. Mm -hmm. He's a, he's a person of some sort of importance. And by contrast, our characters are ordinary, right? Because Mm. they're just, they're assigned that position that status is their status can't be any any higher than his, so it must be lower. And yeah. they're just regular people, which again makes it even more. Um, I mean, I, I found I don't want to call it mannered because it's simply the style of movie making at the time. There there is a kind of formality to everything that happens in the film that dates now. It feels it just feels weird, but it is seventy five years old, and things were different then. Yeah, and I think you know. I, for me, one of the, one of the reasons that I like this movie is that I think it is one of the great formal exercises from a director. Okay. Um, it is, it is real. like, it's crazy. I mean, this, you know, the, I imagine we'll sort of ping around subjects. So this oh, is sure, a little, sure. little bit of a tangent, but David Lean, who we all think Lawrence of Arabia, Bridge Over the River Kwai, big, you know, uh, epics. This for my money is is his best movie and his best use of the camera because it's it is i i mean i cannot tell you how much i respect the achievement of uh at the climax of of brief encounter when she goes out onto the um the thing the plat- and it, it, the yeah the platform and uh, and she's at her like lowest point psychologically and you have the the tilt of insanity the that that Dutch angle, that should be the most casual, obvious gesture in the world, even for movies of that time. That should be just a very obvious formal choice. But because of the way he sets up the whole movie and how restrained the camera work is, it actually really kind of hits because, yeah. because he's not doing much else with, with all of it. And it's so hard to be restrained like that. I, I really admire it. Yeah, the... Uh, the rigidity of the cinematography camera. I mean, sometimes it pans. That's basically it. It's it's a yeah. very staid film. And part of that is simple logistics, right? It was 1945. They didn't have access yeah. to things. But also, and this is the thing that stunned me because I was sure just because it was released in 1946, I always assumed it was shot after the war. And I just found out it wasn't. <laughs> it was made in the last eight months of the war yeah. in England where they had to choose a shooting location that was unlikely to be blitzed to make this movie. And it's set in 1938. So it feels a little distant and the war is never mm-hmm. really present. But the idea that you're seeing city streets and extras and wandering people just living their lives during world war two is incredibly jarring. And I assume you just couldn't set up elaborate camera movements if you wanted to, because what's the point of planning? There's an interest, apparently, um, they they had to occasionally shut down shooting because munitions trains would come through and they would all go out to the platform to watch trains loaded with bullets and weapons and all this stuff go down to, to London to ship over to Europe, um, which is such, and there is, 
there is an interesting tension in that, in the sort of like meta narrative of how you view the film of like this, this film that is so British and so restrained and so uh, embodies a lot of what I understand, what I understand, I don't know, but what I understand to be how the British separated themselves from the, from the Germans during the war psychologically, we are civilization and right. we are, you know, restraints and we're not like the barbaric Germans and all that, that it embodies that gentility. And in the background, you have these munitions trains frantically barreling down to London to save, you know, Western civilization and da, 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 da. Um, is there's something very, very powerful about that to me that, you know, you keep, it's like um, Marcel Carnet, uh, in France during the war, shooting shooting movies and then like running away when the Nazis came to shut down their their filming locations. There's always something very powerful about continuing to make art in the face of the war, especially when it's not about the war. Yeah, I think that's that's such a remarkable thing to do to say like, nope, we are not gonna we're not gonna play that game. We're not gonna bend our lives around this. Um, yeah. And I was wondering if there's a, a metaphor in there about sacrifice, about denying yourself, mm. you know, the happinesses and comforts that you could have because it's more important to do the right thing. Well, not do the right thing, but to keep the British line, to, to, yeah. you know, keep the British side up, stay married. Don't, don't shatter the status quo. Just keep going forward. It is a keep calm and carry on kind of movie in a weird way. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's, it's interesting because I, on a personal level, I don't see much noble in their choice. Like, I, I personally believe um, that if you were in that situation and you had sort of fallen out of love and that you go to couples counseling or you talk about opening up your... And obviously, I'm talking from 2020. That's Right, sure. There, you don't open up your relationship in London in 1940-whatever. No, that's getting um, a lodger. They called it getting a lodger. Ah, nice. Um, so I, it's not that I admire so much the, the result of their actions. I, I just really admire the conviction. Um, and that can, that would take me through the movie on its own, you know, but then on top of that, you have David Lean's best work. You have Celia Johnson just tearing the house down over and over again. Um, in every scene, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to love. I have, I, I was watching it earlier and I started making notes and then I just watched the movie and I was like, oh, I haven't made any notes. So I scrolled down a list of like opinions and there's, and there's so much and it's all over the place. And, um, like, like all great dramatic art forms have to do, it implies so much more than it portrays. Um, and it portrays very little. Like there's, there's not a lot going on, you know, yeah. on on the surface here. But God, the the hand on her shoulder is one of the most devastating things I've ever seen. Um, when when he oh, and I've never hated a character as much as I've hated that woman when <laughs> she's talking. She's like, just let they're in love. Let them say goodbye to each other, but they can't. Oh my heart yeah it uh, is it's it's remarkable filmmaking too i i always forget just how important it is that we see it again the second time and it always catches yeah. me off guard because it's a scene we've seen before it's simply a shift of perspective we see it from the other angle and yeah celia johnson is doing so much by standing like by sitting absolutely still and just yeah. writhing in this pain that she can't communicate to anyone else. And Howard's great too. I mean, again, you know, he's, he owns the role. He hated it so much in, in later years, right? Because that's all anyone ever wanted to talk about, but he is exquisitely good as someone who is doing an awful thing. Like objectively, he's married with children. She's married with children. He is yeah. the one who pursues her and he kind of apologizes for it, but with just enough mirth that, you, I mean, he's he's a giddy adolescent, right? He's being swept up by the romance if you want to see it from that direction. Or yeah. he's just happily breaking up a marriage while he 
flirts around. There's, I can't, I don't know if it's him or not. There's this apocryphal story that someone insists that um, Brief Encounter is the story of a psychiatric patient who leaves once a year and ruins someone's life and then goes back <laughs> to the asylum. Because there's no evidence. There is no supporting evidence for anything he claims. You never see him. You see him leaving a hospital. He might not work there. It's just, it's airtight and it plays. That's the amazing thing. Um, You can see it as Celia Johnson's, like this, this poor woman, Laura, is being destroyed by a man she doesn't really know, but deeply desires. And we just assume he's telling the truth that because she's telling us that she loves him. And so we're on their side. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting, uh, I think that's part of the the function of being a very simple love story too, is that you can go anywhere with it. And I actually think it's revelatory probably on some level of who we are when we watch it, of who, you know, where we land. I know people who have watched it and been like, oh, it's so romantic. They're so in love. And and, you know, I respect that, but I kind of like, they're cheating. You know, they're cheating, right? You know, and, and it's interesting. To. Yeah, they're trying to, they're emotionally cheating. We would call it an emotional affair these days. Sure, yeah. Um, and there are people who get very cynical about it. And I find I kind of land in the middle. It's, it's interesting because Howard, that was Howard's first major role. Um, and he, it's sort of like, I don't know if it's just alchemy or if he, if it was something he did intentionally, but he really kind of in critical moments steps back and lets Celia Johnson do her thing, which is a very underrated skill for actors. There are relatively few actors these days who are really good at like making their co-stars shine rather than just gobbling up all the air. Um, um, Martin Freeman is is pretty good at that. I, I find in in, in so partially because it seems like he just does not care. There's this, <laughs> that's a whole other story. But he does a little bit feel like he doesn't care. I love him. Yeah, anyway, he's, uh, he's got great presence, right? He's a listener, yeah, and yeah, so you, you just, lean into watch the reactions. I I, I would say if if Benedict Cumberbatch wins anything for Sherlock, he should hand half of the statue over to Martin Freeman because he's doing the heavy lifting. But they're both great. Um, but it's it's. And it's also, again, like a sort of metatextual thing with like, he is, he cedes the emotional spotlight to her. That is a polite thing to do. And that is a mark of respect. And, you know, if you, if you, if you don't believe that he's a serial killer, <laughs> um, then. I think he's just an imp. Just like a, he's an incubus. He, he, he shows up and, and tempts women and then flits away possibly um, but but it is you know it's nice it's nice to see that it's just nice to see people treat each other that way um and that's one of the fun tensions in the movie is that i get so lost when they're together i'm just watching them and be like oh gosh you guys you're so great and then i'm like oh wait no 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 and then they're all sort of I swear to God, I can't remember if it's exactly, but I think it's in the boathouse scene um, where they're agonizing about all this stuff. And I think, unless I'm mistaken, Trevor Howard is sitting with like a, a, a knee up and his hand like that. He looks exactly like the thinker. Oh. Um, and the dude has a very sort of statuesque sort of wax skull face to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's all very, it's all very conscientious suffering, but it's nice. It's, it's interesting because the, the tastes of happiness that they get are so brief and so fleeting and so inconsequential and yet manage to imply, I don't know. I'm, I'm so certain when I watch it, that if they got together, it would, it, you know, they would be in exactly the same position as they are with their current spouses you know, I, I, Oh, they yeah. just settle into a sort of comfortable. Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't, it's not a tempestuous romance, really. They just no. connect. Yeah. It's about, I think, I think the, the core thing of the story, and I think this is interesting because we don't see uh, Trevor Howard's side of things. I think the core 
of it for me is that he sees her. He, he actually sees who she is and her husband doesn't. And it's hard to see people, to see your spouse after 20 years of marriage um, with kids and, and all this stuff. So, you know, you can't blame him, but it's, oh, and God, when he says, when, when her husband says, thank you for coming back to me. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, it's so brutal. It's so savage. Um, and it doesn't feel editorial. You know what I mean? Like the way a lot of romances do, it doesn't feel like, you know, the the director and the writer are sort of poking their heads above the fence and be like, do you get it? Do you get it? Yeah, Which no, it's not- it's just the unthinking thing you say when someone yeah. wakes up. It It's, I mean, in, in a weird way, it speaks to how he takes her for granted mm. because there was never any question in his voice that she would have done, right? She just- yeah went to sleep and woke up. That's all that was. But, or she wandered off into a fugue of some sort and now she's back to herself. But it's also that uniquely British thing where you're saying something profound without realizing its profundity because it's just a thing to say. It's it's the sort of internalized rhythm of speech. Yeah, you don't have the context. Yeah, but we do. And it's so shattering. Yeah, and and he, I believe at one point they're they're talking about Trevor Howard's character and and he dismisses him uh, you know as a sort of like bore or tedious guy you know I, I don't remember the words and she laughs in his face it's so and it's so and that laugh is again just a, a wonderful piece of acting because it feels physical it feels like she's not trying to make fun of him it feels like she literally like can't fight down this sort of bubble of irony um, that that came up inside her. It's it's a really remarkable uh, coordination of different viewpoints. Uh, I always wait for her to burst into tears. It always feels like it's just going to be, she's just going to lose herself to hysteria. Um, yeah. And it's, inter- I, I would love to like sit down and look at movies that, do not lose their effectiveness of the effectiveness of their core dramatic function over time mm. and try to figure out why, you know, like what the, the movies that just work every time and beyond that, even the stories in Western culture that just work every, like the Odyssey works every time I've seen it done by kids, you know, at an elementary school and it still works Christmas Carol works every time. Wizard of Oz works every time. And I wonder why. Um, I think on some level, they all, all the ones that really endure tell a moral story, uh, an mm. elemental moral story where right, yeah. right and righteousness are rewarded. And even Brief Encounter does that because they don't do it because they don't run off together. And if yeah. they had, it wouldn't be, it would be a happy ending and you would never think about the film again. Or you'd yeah. maybe you'd maybe argue about the morality of it, but but because they don't, and because the whole thing is about living with regret and not knowing that everybody can connect to that, we can all relate to it to do the right thing and to suffer for it. I think everybody, yeah. whether we have or not, we all think we've done that. Yeah, and it could be it could so easily have been less. It it could I, at the time of um, uh, the brief encounter was filmed. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but David Lean was not seen as a as a as a great artist, he was seen as a admirable technician, a, you know, a, a craftsman director. Yeah, he was the uh, guy you got to shoot your big, complicated adaptation of Oliver Twist. Because yeah, because he could juggle the characters, he could make his days, and he could do it all without bothering anyone. Like he, he was not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't a yeller. He wasn't a shouter. Um, as far as I know, like there's this one story about him making a hungover Peter O'Toole get on a camel and be violently ill because he wanted to punish him for partying the night before. That is the only time I think I've ever heard of David Lean behaving poorly. I That's the only time I've heard of him behaving poorly on set. I've, I've heard of his uh, philandering uh, way. Personally, sure, yes. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> which, diff- I mean, that's a different relationship, I'm sure. Which is also a really interesting thing to think about the sort of creative forces that went into this being Noel Coward 
and his like intensely thought out and uh, public sexual presence. Yeah. And David Lean, who was apparently, I didn't know this, like a, a devastatingly handsome and charming uh, uh, straight man. Mm. Um, kind of like a, Robert Shaw before Robert Shaw was Robert Shaw. That's the, the image yeah. of him that I have. <laughs> Just, you know, well, blocky, but, but striking. Yeah. And, and intelligent and direct and clear. Um, I, I've heard, but I have never seen really verified that still life, the play that this was based on was when Noel Howard conceived it, he would have liked to have it performed by two men. Uh, oh, well, again, this is, I think this is from the essay in the criterion <laughs> version. So, and it doesn't come with like a source. <laughs> so I'm not sure it, though. Well, especially if it was only the scenes in the train station where there's absolutely no, I mean, there's barely like there would be the only physical contact you have is the hand on the shoulder. There's nothing else, yeah. no kissing, no touching. You could pull that off with two men. And now I kind of want to see that work, but it's, well, yeah, it's that's Carol. Um, a lot of this is, is just Carol. The, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy. I, I remember watching it and, and Carol's a great movie and I think they definitely make it their own, but it is very much a riff on brief and count, like down to the hand on the shoulder. The structure is exact. Like, cause I, I think they do the exact same scenic structure where we see her at the restaurant uh, Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett uh, meet at the restaurant and Rooney Mara's like with that guy and then and then we go back and we do the whole thing and then we see them at the restaurant again at the end which is the exact yeah. structure of Brief Encounter. I was uh, trying to frame it as how many times do they go to the store? How many times are we seeing them together mm-hmm. there? But no, you're right. It's the restaurant. Of course the restaurant's the anchor. Yeah, it's... <sighs> Well, then I think it is, it's instructive to look at the difference between Carol and, and Brief Encounter. Um, because in Carol, yeah, in Carol, they do run away. And they do, we, we see them fall apart and we see them get jealous and we see the, the relationship in some sort of form realized. And I think, I think one of the things one of the reasons Brief Encounter endures is because every time I watch it, I have the impossible dream of their relation. I see it the way they see it. Because I've been in that situation. I mean, we've all been in that situation where there's someone that we have this thing like, oh, wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't we be amazing together? All this sort of thing. For whatever reason, you know, it doesn't work out. That's speaking of, you know, an elemental moral issue, that's an Mm -hmm. elemental moral issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think the, again, like one of the things I keep coming back to with this is restraint um, on, on every level, which is not a word I usually associate with either Noel Coward or David Lean, really. (laughs) Um, So good for them. Yeah. But it's the triumph of working with what you've got with, Mm limiting yourself. I think the fact that it is based on a play and the choices to expand it have to be so precise and deliberate. You can, you can take the film anywhere, but you can't really get away from the thing you have to do in the next fixed scene when we go back to the train station. So over and over again, you can have these moments where you can add uh, a conversation that changes everything. You can add um, just the moment on the bridge, which is so simple and quiet and then echoes again when they go back to it as the most tragic thing in history. You can do all of those things and never break the spine, right? So mm-hmm. you have the opportunity to to just zigzag all over the place. But the, the, the fact of this spine, the fact that you have to come back and things have to sort of be more or mm. less stable forces you to steer into the skid, right? You, can't, you can never really yeah. deviate. And so it has to stay, it gives it a, it gives it a backbone that stays intact uh, no matter what you do. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't think I would ever have guessed that it was based on a play if I didn't know that going in. And, you know, I, I come from theater. I I, I can usually guess, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, but I, is, I thought it was based on a radio play. I thought it was originally because of the flashback structure and how much narration there is. My first thought was, oh, this was a radio adaptation or this was yeah. created for radio. And it has, subsequently has been um, adapted mm. to radio. But yeah, it, no, live stage performances, a half an hour short play. Crazy, because yeah. it, that all, all of it feels so essential. Uh, you know, the boathouse, the bridge, everything feels absolutely of a piece. But, you know, I think the unconsummated love thing and the unconsummated suicide thing and the all of the the fact that it exists in a state of potential, nobody in that story is thinking about the present except for the few brief moments very early on when they're spending time together and going to the movies and stuff like that. Everybody's living in the future or the past at different moments. They're either the future potential of we'd be in this together or the future of like, well, I have, you know, what if my husband finds out? What if my wife finds out? All that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that quality also really helps because, and that's, that's just a story thing. That's just a nature by nature of what slice of this story they've chosen to portray. Mm -hmm. Um, what could you do? You know, what could you do with your camera? What could you do with uh, your actors, with your different settings? There's no, I wish more movies had, uh, had the level of formal precision that this movie does because it, it understands there's nowhere to go. You know, there's nowhere else to be except Celia Johnson's eyes. That's, yeah. That's where we want to be. That's where we want to stay. And, and we stay there. And, um, and I think part of that, part of the problems that we run into today is the way directors come up uh, through the industry is everybody wants to be Ari Aster. Everybody wants to be, you know, Robert Eggers and, and Damien Chazelle. And all of those guys are great. But it means that people now have this weird idea that a director is a person who <sighs> presents themselves through a story rather than a person who presents a story. Um, right. It's the technician versus the orchestra conductor, right? Like the yeah. huge flourishing gestures, wearing a tuxedo for no particular reason, but you know the sense that you are commanding the film and therefore the audience as opposed to i mean even lean towards the end things like ryan's daughter they're gorgeous but mm. he's still pointing the camera at the story he's not yeah. doing things with the camera the way the showier type of a filmmaker will and i yeah i i like ari aster and damien chazelle and um uh robert eggers just just fine and i really like what they do but they do it because that's their thing right not everybody should be doing that thing yeah, and it's it's sort of it's the Christopher it's Nolan not, argument, right? Like only one person yeah. can be Christopher Nolan. People should stop yeah. trying. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, if I want to watch a Christopher Nolan movie, I'll just watch a Christopher Nolan movie, not you know whatever other. Per I've never I've never sat down and been like, you know, I wish I could watch Quentin Tarantino, but worse. Um, yeah, I get that. But I think the problem the problem with this auteur thing and with the sort of director on steroids uh, thing that we're in now is that every, every young director wants to go to Sundance with their first feature, win the directing award, get picked up by A24, and that if you don't do that, then game over. And that's frustrating, not just, you know, for me as someone who just directed their debut feature and um uh and i'm and i'm extremely happy with it but it's not you know i don't know if you if you've watched it but it's not uh like oh i've a, seen it. yeah 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 you know you yeah. know it's very weird um yeah but i, I mean although you you are doing this formal thing that is sort of comparable in a weird way just because it hooks people in but then the way you and we we can talk about this if you'd like i don't i'm desperate not to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but <laughs> the way that you play with what it is that we're looking at and whose perspective we are seeing, um, because it's also about an unconsummated relationship in a weird, weird way. It's, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. 
it's interesting. Like, I think about people like Fassbinder and uh, Bergman to a certain extent, people whose first few movies are not good. Um, and someone, someone out there is going to come at me about like whatever the Bergman's crew, uh, the cruise or something. One, one of his first few ones or port of call. Oh yeah. Uh, the early Bergman stuff. Yep. Yeah. That's literally someone, the name of the criterion box. They had to release them together because no one would buy them individually. I totally get that. Yep. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I have that criterion box and I love two thirds of it. Um, but you know, there are, I, I worry that there are some folks out there, particularly um, given our current climate uh, in, in the industry, particularly women and people of color, who are cre- making a movie, it doesn't immediately blow up, partially because they have an interesting point of view, and then they get discouraged. Um, and I wish that we had a little more space to develop technicians the way that Billy Wilder came up, um, the way that uh, David Lean came up, the way that a lot of these guys, you know, just moved slowly up through mentorships and that sort of thing and learned their craft and didn't just pop onto the scene Orson Welles style. Right. Um, who is the big, as he always is, the the big sort of linchpin turning point in, in all of this. Um, uh, but that's also like, a director is such a new concept because theater, you know, if in, in the 1800s, if you were going to do Hamlet, you would hire the actors, you, the producer would hire the actors and just get them on and off stage without running into each other. You would never tell like Edwin Booth how to play Hamlet. That's his job that he knows how to play Hamlet. So this idea of the director as the person who works with the actors then that morphs into the person who controls the entire thing and becomes the author of the movie seems to me to be a invention of a particular group of lazy French critics <laughs> from the Cahiers du Cinema who, I shouldn't say lazy, we're just trying to figure out a way to write about film. And it's a lot easier to write about film if you're like, ah, look at his work here compared to his work here and look at the influence from here to here to here rather than being like here's this group of people who presented this thing we don't know who was influenced by what or where what came from where da, 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 da. Um, uh, i'm in danger of ranting at this point so i will, no, no, I will I, cut my director rant short I, I get it and lean is a great contrast to that argument because he you know he did by the end have not even by the end, by Lawrence, he was that guy. He was the person you went to when you had a massive international studio picture about something and and a huge epic sprawl because he could do that. But he also worked with the actors, built the story, made sure we cared rather than just show you the spectacle. I mean, um, I like Spartacus, but it's, you know, Mm -hmm. it's cobbled together from somebody else's project and Kubrick came in and replaced Anthony Mann and there's all of this stuff. And it looks and feels like a studio picture that Stanley Kubrick directed the action scenes for. It it doesn't have a signature in the same way. And Lawrence is one of my two favorite films, like just ever because of- It's an amazing film. Yeah, and, and it's because Lean understands the potential right, of the story, that you can tell this massive internal story against a gargantuan canvas of the war and the desert mm. and, and all the pieces fit together. But he is doing that because he respects the script so much, I think. Like he's, he's, in, he's fully engaged with the text. It's an interesting thing. I was actually just thinking about this because I recently, uh, with a friend, rewatched um, Fellowship of the Ring. Okay. And I was watching it and I was like, this is kind of the last gasp of lean style epics, really. Because like, if you look at the epics now, you know, Infinity War and Endgame and, and all the Marvel stuff, like they do their own thing and that's fine. Um, it's not for me, but that, you know, it's totally cool and I get why people like it. But it's not the same, the, the quality of spectacle that they're putting forward is fundamentally different because they are saying, Marvel is saying like, look at, look at this, what we've assembled for you. You know, this guy, you know, this guy, you know, this, this, this. and so they, they're combining known elements 
right. in interesting ways is, is what they put forward. Whereas the, something like Lord of the Rings or something like, and even Christopher Nolan, I think is one of the last people who can get away with this. They, you know, the, the MPAA thing comes on, the studio logos come by and, and he just goes, just trust me. Just trust me. We're going somewhere. I have earned your trust at this point. Like, come with me. Yeah, that's um, it, isn't it? It's scale and pacing. Those are the things that have yeah. gone away. Like and it's, and the, the concept of spectacle is so... It's a brute force uh, tool. And if you want, you can punch an audience in the face with it over and over and over again. And if you leaven it with some humor and put some attractive people in it and you know, all that stuff, it'll look, it'll look and sort of walk like a, like an old fashioned spectacle. Mm -hmm. But back when they couldn't do literally anything, that's also part of the problem. (laughs) I'm ranting again, but part of the problem is CGI uh, can do pretty much anything now, you know, and but it still doesn't quite look right. So it doesn't feel like you're there. Whereas Lord of the Rings, I remember one of the biggest thing with Lord of the Rings was like, holy shit, look at New Zealand. Yeah. Look how beautiful those actual places are. And, and I still watch it and I'm still sort of blown away. Whereas, you know, you can get the most talented VFX team in the world and they have to do your, you know, alien planets or that sort of thing. I'm still just sitting there and be like, okay, cool. That's, that's a cool set of pixels that you have assembled. Um, and so yeah. the, the concept of like earning spectacle is, has kind of been lost a little bit, but also, you know, I, I don't want to come off as like one of the banging the drum against Marvel movies. Like again, you know, I totally get it. I just disagree. Yeah, I think they, I really enjoy the idea that they are casting interesting actors to do the lifting mm-hmm. because that's yeah. what makes it interesting for me. Um, little things like, again, like Infinity War, the only thing I really take away from that movie is the fact that someone realized that Doctor Strange and Tony Stark would hate each other because they're the same character. And that's great. That's the animating principle for that whole movie for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, the, uh, I've actually, I just took another look at the Lord of the Rings movies because the 4K discs came out last right. week, last week i guess when we're recording this and yeah the the difference between the tactile sensibility the locations the sense the, the thing that i've always used to explain lawrence to people who've never seen it is it was made before anything was possible i mean you had man mm-hmm. paintings there's that mm-hmm. shot of the camels and the camera really is that far away because you couldn't cheat yeah. it you have to be there and Fellowship has some of those scenes too, the Shire at a distance and little wagons traveling around and, and just the sense of an overwhelming constructed world. There is, I mean, there's plenty of digital work in the films, but it looks like you could touch it. And that's yeah. something that's gone away. And, and again, Brief Encounter, they shot the whole thing on location. There's some soundstage work, but that's a real train station. Those are real streets. Those are real people wandering around. That's boots. Like it's, it's, all, yeah. just, it's all just live. Yeah, I think the the concept of texture is so interesting and the concept of geography. I I think this is one of those indefensible statements um, <laughs> that I will, you know, I could get backed off of very easily, but I think geography pulling the spirit of a place out of a movie is the possibly the best thing a movie can do to really capture the spirit of a location and a way of life at a location even if it's not real, you know, if it's hobbits in the Shire, whatever, I don't care. Like that is, if you can do that, then I can fill in everything else. Yeah. Then that, that becomes epic. That is like, for me, Brief Encounter is absolutely an epic movie because I can fill in the whole world around these characters in the same way, you know, Moon for Love, which is another direct analog, very clearly influenced by Brief Encounter. In fact, I think Wong Kar Wai has talked about it at some point. Yeah, I'm sure Um, I would have acknowledged it. Like, In the Mood for Love is a little more obvious because of the attention to color and the, you know, it it looks more like, but I I cannot imagine someone watching that and not feeling like it's a romantic epic. Yeah. 
it's interesting. Romance is such an interesting genre because it's, to me, the most similar genre to horror uh, in the sense that there is a mechanism in place. Uh, there is an A to B and we know what it is. We walk in and we know what it is. We are going from alive to dead or we're going from single to married or, you know, okay. whatever the thing is. Yeah, yeah. They both are high stress, big emotional situations. Um, and what is interesting about both of them for me is deviations from the baseline. Uh, this is, uh, I'm pulling some from Carol J. Clover, the, the academic horror critic who talks about when you're looking at drama, you look at what is exceptional. You look at the best dramatic movies and, and all that sort of thing to establish your, your, your sense of the genre. When you're looking at horror, you treat it, you study it like folklore. You look at the story that we tell over and over and over again and distill it down to its essential elements. There's a reason movies like Cabin in the Woods are successful is because right. we all have done that process. And I think romance is kind of not, not the same and the, the archetypes aren't quite as tight, but it's definitely similar. And, you know, you can trace DNA from uh, Brief Encounter to the Before Trilogy from Linklater through to Carol. You can trace it to um, In the Mood for Love. I was thinking, I, I recently rewatched the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. And there's that thing where Darcy is like getting off a wagon and he does this hand flex thing that becomes like a big deal to Elizabeth. The hands, it's yeah. hands. It's the hand on the shoulder. It's the hand, you know, both in, in uh, Brief Encounter and Carol. Um, yeah. And I wonder too, if romance works on people the same way, because as with horror, we know what we want, mm. right? Like you come in with an expectation but there's also that particular subgenre, that strain that works for you. There's either, you know, the, mm. there's there's giallo or there's Hitchcockian mm -hmm. suspense. There's tension. There's release. There's Texas Chainsaw versus Halloween. All of mm. these things play into what people will love and will defend. And then romance similarly gives you like, do you want it demonstrative or do you want it repressed? Do you want it furtive? Mm -hmm. Do you want the the only physical contact to be a moment where someone stumbles and gets picked up and caught, saved from the mud puddle? Or do you want gigantic displays of people standing, you know, shirtless in the rain, uh, holding a boombox? Wait, no, I've, I've conflated a couple of things there, but you know what I'm going for. It's uh, maybe that's what I want. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No. And I think that you can learn a lot about the society in which you live by the rise and fall of these little genres. Um, we, for the past eight or nine years, one of the major sort of rising subgenres in romance has been uh, BDSM inflected stuff, um, like Fifty Shades of Grey. There was a movie, I lost a bet, and I had to watch with my friends this movie, 365 Days on Netflix. It is, it is, so I'm just gonna- I'm, Yeah, I'm gonna, I do not know this film. I'm gonna pitch this movie to you the way that I imagine they pitched it to Netflix. So it's a Polish and Italian co-production, I think. And what I imagine they did is they said, okay, okay, I got a great movie for you. Here's what it is. There's this girl, right? And she's like super hot. And there's this guy and he's super hot. And they like run into each other and he gets like obsessed with her. So he kidnaps her. He kidnaps her and she's like, no, I don't want to be kidnapped. And he says, I'm going to keep you for a year. And if you don't fall in love with me for a year, I'm going to let you go. And she's like, I will never fall in love with you. But then she does. And they like end up together. It's bananas that that this was allowed to happen. And it's, it's like, it's very bad on top of that. But the badness okay. is not what's interesting to me. The interesting thing is this is a kidnapping. Yeah. Why are you glorifying this? Well, uh, that's weird. It really, it's a very, it's not worth, I mean, and it's based on novels, of course. The, sure. That's all and all that. But I think, you know, I, I work in um, or have worked for a long time in consent education and domestic violence and, and all that sort of thing. And we are way past art imitates life. We are well into life imitates art. And 
I think the the rise and fall of these subgenres are expressive of our needs that we're trying to fulfill romantically. And I think one of the reasons these control and and like dubious consent movies um, are are becoming popular is because we are more and more aware of how little control we have in our lives. Mm. So like uh, Victorian possession novels, that sort of thing, where yeah, not, not think, demonic possession, but to actually possess someone. Physically. Yeah, it yeah, and this this sense of like imagine someone who desires you so much that they will do this horrible thing and and, and all that. And but I think it is, and it's also like the rise of that genre comes alongside a this big uptick uh in these netflix teen romances the to all the boys i've loved before and 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 those things which are all about empowerment mm-hmm. putatively i mean th- that's debatable when you get into like the um critical theory of it but you know it's about empowerment and i think that's such an interesting thing because and you know, to come back to brief encounter, that's what brief encounter holds in tension: the love and the uh, the joy that they feel together, and the chains that they feel they have around them are kind of in the balance. And at any given moment, they might tip one way. We might tip into you know a tragedy about adultery or a beautiful romance where they run away together and we're happy because they're, you know, their spouses are assholes or whatever. Right. Um, and that's what life is like to me. You know, that's like, life doesn't, life doesn't say put a big sign on the person you're supposed to be with and be like, they're here. Here's where they are. This is the person be with this person and you'll never have any doubts. It's not, I mean, I have this pet theory that a lot of pop culture is just propaganda for monogamy, uh, <laughs> which a case could be made. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's, and it's also interesting that this movie is relatively for Noel Coward um, humorless. There's some scenes. There's the scenes with the guy, the the guy who comes in, the sort of working class dude, and but those yeah. are so clearly not anybody's actual interest. There's so clearly scenes that people were like, okay, we need a funny bit. Yeah. And they put a funny bit and everybody did fine. But it's really very serious. And I think most people associate romance with comedy. Um, well, the, the light, but, bouncy feeling that one gets in infatuation, right? Like, yeah. It's supposed to mimic that. And so many of the greatest movies ever made are rom-coms. I, despite everything, I still adore some of, you know, Woody Allen's stuff. Um, I, I just try to forget who made them and uh, Preston Sturgis is one of my favorite directors, but there's always the other side of the coin, which is one of the things the apartment does so well. No, no, no. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, we can, we can acknowledge all these things. Like I, no, it's, you I, built I, a I, continuum here. It makes perfect sense. I, I am from the UK, I'm like first generation American, but my family is from the UK. So I have that British uh, suppression. And so whenever I start rambling, the Irish in me rambles. And then the British in me is like, okay, all right, take it down a notch. Let's, <laughs> let's check in. So that's why I keep checking. <laughs> right. Wow. No, I totally get that. Um, yeah, I, I've been trying to figure, you mentioned domestic violence and and that's a factor in survival skills. And I'm trying to figure out how sure. to connect the two. Um, we talked about this up at the top. Uh, I don't, I was trying, What I, one of the fun things about this podcast is figuring out why people pick the movies they pick in light of my own auteur theory inclination, in light of the movies they make. So yeah. brief encounter and survival skills, other than kind of being about infatuation a little bit, but in radically different ways, I don't see the... The connection, but it's fascinating that there might be one. I, you know, anything I say about survival skills should be regarded as suspect because I can't <laughs> be objective. Uh, sure. But I would, I would offer the possibility that survival skills is actually as restrained as brief encounter is in a different way, because the hardest thing about shooting survival skills, and we had no money. 
you know, we, it was a tough shoot, uh, a lot of fun, but a tough shoot. The hardest thing was that we were so beholden to the style. Right. Um, there, you know, there are a lot of choices in those scenes that I would never have made if I was just shooting the scenes, but like, I couldn't do anything like my directorial voice is not super present in survival skills. My voice as a writer is certainly, um, but for the majority of the movie, I'm just doing training video. Yeah. Um, you have you know. to sublimate any stylistic choices to the format, right? Yeah. And the, the format is very in your face and it's very um, obvious and, and, and all that, but it's also the same kind of format as the theatrical conceit of brief encounter where we're just working around, again, this spine. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that we have to do is extrapolate out um, from what would be, you know, a 20, 30 minute training video in the same way that still life is a 20, 30 minute play. Yeah. Uh, with varied success, I think. Uh, but a, a similar, a, an attempt at a similar kind of focus. Um, so I, I don't know. It's interesting. I'm, we're gearing up for my second feature, um, in, uh, April and that is going to be, it's something that's similar to survival skills, but sort of set in the world of eighties slasher movies. Um, we talk about Texas chainsaw and Halloween all day long. I've been watching, I've watched every Friday, the 13th, like <laughs> several times now. Okay. Um, but after that, I have I have three set up this this little trilogy of sort of what I what I think of as the format movies, which are, you know, they're all within formats that I have to deal with. And then once we're done with those, I'm done doing that forever. <laughs> but the third one is uh, without, you know, going into it too much is sure. in the world of um, uh, pornography uh, okay. of amateur you know, porno- pornography scenes, like the plumber comes to the, 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 and all that sort of thing. Right. And that is a, that one is a romance. Um, uh, it's a very weird, complicated thing, but like, I'm chasing the intersection between what is important to me and what I feel I can really pull something important and unique out of uh out of the material and out of myself through the material um and what i think would be interesting for other people to watch and for me survival skills is virtually sexless um and my next movie which will be called dead teenagers which i love that title um is also functionally sexless because I have a really complicated history with sex and sexuality. Um, I need to partition it on a person, just like on a personal level. And I think when we talk about auteur stuff, that's that to me, when I look at other people's work, that's what's interesting to me. It's not like, ah, yes, the use of high angles and wide lenses and blah, 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 blah. Um, Yeah, fine, great, cool. (laughs) But what I want to know you know, I, I want to talk to Quentin Tarantino about what his deal with feet is. I want, yeah, I want to, he, he will tell you. I bet he would Quite at sure. length. Yeah. <laughs> get, get him on your podcast, the yeah. feet episode. <laughs> I don't think there's enough smart card space in the world. SD card space? What is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so when we talk about like briefing counter and that sort of thing, I personally find that my attitude towards brief encounter I'm saving. Um, and this is a, you know, I went through four or five years ago, I was engaged and I went through a, you know, a breakup. She and I are still friends and she's, she's great, but that shattered me totally. Um, and I, do not know, and I'm not saying this, you know, as for any great pity or anything like that, just to explain, I do not know how to love right now. 
And I am going after this third movie through Brief Encounter, like explicitly through Brief Encounter to teach myself that. And I want to make a good movie and, you know, all that stuff. But really, like, if I wanted money, I could, you know, there are many, many better jobs to take. I'm interested in uh, going, diving down. I'm going, I'm interested in going for depth, not breadth, which is actually interesting to talk about in terms of David Lean, who is one of the few people who could do both. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think, I don't know, I don't like to, you know, I don't think the movies that I make, I, I don't think I should charge people to watch me perform therapy on myself. But I find it interesting to dig into uh, this, the motivating forces, where fire comes from for different creative people. Um, for me, survival skills was all about anger. Um, and I didn't realize it while I was making it uh, until, you know, and you see it through new eyes when you see it with critics and, and you know, other your friends watch it and talk to you about it. It's a very angry movie. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would say (laughs) who would make that. Um, And that was the animating force. I was really pissed off about the way we handle uh, domestic violence and the way the police were behaving around it. And I was mad about the police as an organization, as a concept. Um, And with dead teenagers, uh, as you might guess, I'm really kind of over, I don't know about anybody else. I'm really kind of over the way we allow teenagers to die in this country. I'm over them getting shot up in their schools. I'm over them committing suicide because they don't have access to sufficient mental health. Um, I'm, I'm angry about that. And that anger, that, that for me is the kind of thing that can animate a movie that can really give you the drive to get through to the end. And whereas this third one that I'm talking about, with brief encounter that's animated by fear um fear of being alone fear of not fear fear of love fear of commitment and vulnerability and intimacy and all that sort of thing um and i i do this when i watch movies i try to track where was this coming from and I realize I'm, you know, I'm kind of contradicting myself earlier, being like, the director shouldn't be the da 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 Yeah. And I still believe that in a public-facing way. Like, the director should not be seen as the author of the movie. But for my contribution to the movie, it's got to come from a very personal place. Otherwise, you know, I'm not, I'm not good enough to last as a technician. <laughs> I, I started doing this four or five years ago there are kids who've been doing this since they were six. There are kids out there who like grew up with cameras in their hands and and all that sort of thing. I can't compete with that. Um, But like we were saying earlier, you know, the, the only thing you can ever be the best at is being yourself. If they want Quentin Tarantino, they're going to hire Quentin Tarantino. There's no, you're never going to be better. Right. You're never going to be better than, um, Ari Aster doing an Ari Aster movie or on and on and on and on. Uh, So if you don't have insane technical skills, this is all you can do. You're trapped. You're trapped Um, in a loveless marriage. (laughs) With the camera? I'm I'm not sure where this metaphor ends. (laughs) Oh, don't start calling me on my metaphors. If, (laughs) If we start, if we start actually trying to follow through with the metaphors that I bring up, we're going to be here all day. I know. I have the same problem. <laughs> yeah. um, well, but to that end, uh, and this is the way that we usually wrap the podcast up, is there anything that you've borrowed or lifted or stolen or planned to borrow or lift or steal from Brief Encounter? I mean, you, it sounds like you've laid out structurally some oh, things. so many but things. Yeah. Is there something that you're wanting to use? Something that... Yeah. I, I'm So one of the things that Brief Encounter taught me is it's okay to just have two people walk into a room, sit down and talk. And that's not supposed to be okay. Uh, I, I went for a little while to USC and they a lot of the people there would tell you that's not okay. <laughs> and with good intentions, and I get why they say that, but um, 
it's, it's about having faith in the material. And I plan to steal so much from, from brief encounter, like in terms of the way it presents stuff and, and specific flourishes and then things like that. But the big thing is like this little story, this tiny little story cracked me open in a way that world masterpieces happened in all, in all mediums, you know, even some of my favorite books, some of my favorite movies are that are these big sweeping story, things like the brothers Karamazov, which is one of my favorite books. It's enormous. It has, there's so much volume to it. And, but to me, brief encounter did more for me. I'm not saying it's better. I mean, it's, there's no point comparing. No, no, I get it. Um, but what uh, speaks to you is what speaks to you. That's just yeah. how it works. Yeah, and you can. This is this is uh, a sort of larger thing, but I actually a friend of mine just sent me this little, I guess, meme or it's a, this little bit of text that somebody was talking to their therapist and said, "I'm really depressed. I can't get out of bed." The therapist said, "Why can't you get out of bed?" She said, "There's this stack of dishes, and I I know that if I go to do the dishes, I'm going to have to scrub them because the dishwasher won't." get everything off um, of the of the dishes. And so the therapist said, well, just do the dishes, run the dishes twice. So well, you can't run the dishwasher twice. Well, why not? And the and I love that because it's like, why why can't you do that? Why can't you make a little movie of two people falling in love and that never consummate it? Why can't you make a movie that is almost entirely an 80s police training video? Why can't like you will probably fail at some things. And, you know, there are one of the things I'm most proud of about survival skills is that there are chunks of it that don't work in my opinion. And that's great. I would hate it if I came out here just for my temperament. I would, I would hate it if I came out and made just a slick, you know, a, a tight 90, like slick genre piece that, you know, that puts you on the assembly line that leads to Disney. That sucks. I'm really proud of the things that don't work. Uh, uh, I get. I mean, I think what I'm sort of circling around talking about is courage. It it gave me courage, and that is a precious and non-renewable resource. My thanks to Quinn Armstrong, whose new film Survival Skills is now available to watch on VOD in the U.S. and Canada. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. Quinn's not on Twitter, but you can follow his movie at SurvivalSkills9, all one word, the numeral 9, and you can find Brief Encounter on Blu-ray and DVD from the Criterion Collection, either on its own or as part of the excellent David Lean Directs Noel Coward box set. It's also streaming on the Criterion channel. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Everything's roaring back after the holidays and there's some pretty good stuff coming up. Stay inside. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. And I'll see you next week.